Well, as people, as people make their way in, uh, just I'll direct you to the passage we're going to be in this morning. It's from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43. Um, if you're here visiting or if you just don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles in the pews. And if you want to pull one of those out, you'll find this, uh, this text on page 818. Well, let's begin. Words have the power to shape people's reactions, even to shape the way they think, the way they see the world. Uh, in a kind of a light example, imagine if you were needing to confront your neighbor about some obnoxious dogs that were just yapping all night long, driving everyone insane, but you might try and diffuse the situation and, and, and couch your words to say something like, I'm concerned that this consistent violation of the noise ordinance may cause resentment to build up uh, within the neighborhood. So I'd, just, I'd love to collaborate with you in coming up with a solution. I try to be diplomatic. But in a more serious note, just think of occasions in history when a powerful speech or even a powerful phrase uh, inspired an entire nation or defined a movement. All the way back to Patrick Henry's words, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Or Winston Churchill in the midst of, of the, the darkness of, of World War II and the Nazi uh, invasion, his words, victory at all costs, victory in spite of all terrors, victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. Or of course, Martin Luther King's, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Words have power. And without a doubt, Jesus Christ shaped the world with his words like no one else uh, before or since. And yet even as Christians, even as as, uh, those of us here sitting today under the preached word, sometimes we become so familiar with the teaching uh, of Jesus and and the, the countless ways that it shaped our world for the past 2,000 years that we don't realize how powerful and how profound it is. When Jesus began his ministry, nearly, nearly everything about him defied the expectations of his own people, the nation of Israel, the very ones who were awaiting the promised Messiah. And when he began to teach about the kingdom of God, he was up against a huge obstacle for the disciples and the crowds had expectations of a Messiah who would bring about political change, who would completely overthrow the world order. So how could Jesus explain that his mission was to be rejected and crucified? How could he explain that the kingdom was not going to be like they had anticipated? How could he turn the paradigm entirely on its head? Well, Jesus, the most influential teacher and effective communicator that ever walked this earth, he used parables. He told them stories about farming and baking. He taught them about the kingdom with, with tiny seeds and troublesome weeds. He disarmed their political expectations because 
It's kind of hard to take illustrations about gardening and bread dough and spark a political revolution. So if, if, you know, if you're an activist, you know, take notes. That's probably not the best way to go about it. Well, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning from Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowd, the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you, you open your word to us this morning, that you open our hearts to your word, that we might receive, that we might uh, respond in faith, that we might bear fruit. Uh, just pray that you uphold us, uh, keep us, strengthen us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I believe these parables offer us some much-needed encouragement and strength this morning. We're going to dig into to each one in turn, but if I were to summarize kind of just a main overarching point for this passage, I would, I would say this. Don't lose heart in the midst of a hostile world, for Jesus uses the small and unimpressive to do his great kingdom work, and he will return to make all things right. Don't lose heart in the midst of a hostile world, for Jesus uses the small and unimpressive to do his great kingdom work, and he will return to make all things right. 
So our, our outline, as we kind of go through each section in turn, is, is going to be simple. It's, it's, the first point is the kingdom's enemy. And then second, the kingdom's success. And then finally, the kingdom revealed, uh, the kingdom's revelation. And uh, the children, if you want to make note of a word, um, starting from this point, uh, it would be the word kingdom, which will probably show up a lot. So point number one, the kingdom's enemy. And as, as Jesus uh, initially, in, in verses 24 through 30, shares this parable of the weeds, let's just look at that briefly again. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. Stop there for now. In this in this story, Jesus explains something really significant about the nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the scholar and, and theologian Tom Schreiner writes, the kingdom of God has come in transforming power, but astonishingly, the enemies of the kingdom persist and are not removed from the scene. The world is filled with ambiguity and tension between those transformed by the kingdom and those hating the kingdom. Now, this would have surely come as a shock for the the Jews of Jesus' day, including his disciples. They expected a kingdom that would come in like a hurricane with overwhelming force, decimating God's enemies and bringing about the righteous reign of the Messiah, the son of David. And the mystery that Jesus revealed through his parables of the kingdom was that really a quite different scenario was going to play out. There will be good seed There will be seed that bears fruit, and in this parable that represents people. The good seed is is described as as people. But there's also an enemy at work, so in bad seed, and these weeds are mingled with the wheat. That is the, the situation going forward, the situation in which we find ourselves. There's no final day of reckoning, no removal of all the wicked. This is what the the Jewish disciples would have expected. When Messiah appeared. And if we're honest, it's not hard for us to think the same way sometimes. You know, why, why do we live in this world of tension and, and coexisting with such evil? We long for God to sweep away wickedness and sin and misery. We want to stop being surrounded by these things. I appreciated Matthew's prayer at, at, uh, at the break and, and just thinking about it, it burdens our souls, you know, to live in this world of, of senseless shootings, of, of suicides, of civil wars, sexual abuse, human trafficking, abortion, and, and we could just keep going on. But Jesus is explaining something very important for for his disciples, for us to grasp. The kingdom arrives, but the kingdom does not destroy all opposition. The sons of the kingdom are right alongside the sons of the evil one. 
But make no mistake, the kingdom has broken into this dark world. It has arrived because Christ arrived. Through his earthly ministry, through the word he preached, through his life and death and resurrection, the kingdom has been inaugurated. Uh, It's a theological kind of seminary term often used. It's been inaugurated. It's here because there are people here who belong to the kingdom, the good seed. Us, as Jesus' disciples, we are already new creations. And yet we still await Christ's return. We still await that day when every promise is fully and finally fulfilled. So how do we explain this problem of of so much evil in the world? Why is it that so many oppose Jesus and reject the message of the gospel? You know, this is a a huge question that, that really causes... Many people to struggle, Christians included. And I think you can see this even in the questions that the servants asked the master of the field. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And the answer Jesus gives us, it's so brief, it's so simple. It's just an enemy has done this. You know, we want to know so much more. We want to try and understand the nature of evil and Satan and how these things relate to a sovereign God. But Jesus says, this was the work of an enemy. Now, for now, wait. And in the end, I will sort it out. Leave it to me. I'll deal with it. But trust me. And and we notice, too, in this parable that the master of the field has the ability to send reapers and gather up the weeds right now. But he says, no, that's not the best course of action. And he specifically says that he's waiting until harvest time, not for the sake of the weeds, for the sake of the wheat. It's for their good that he delays this final sorting process. He delays the removal of all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, as it says later. So this is where faith comes in. You know, we can go to numerous other places in Scripture and explore the relationship between God and Satan's work and look at Genesis chapter 3 or the first two chapters of Job. We can study the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And in the end, I think we'll end up right back here with what Jesus teaches us in this parable. God is not to blame as the agent of evil. An enemy has done this, and God will make it right. He will judge evil and reward the righteous, but he's reserving that for a future day. And so don't lose heart. In the midst of a hostile world, We can trust him, even when we don't get all the answers to all the questions that we have. And one of the reasons that we should not lose heart is that God is at work. He's changing the world. He's sowing good seed, even through weak and unimpressive means. And that's the second point. Point number two, the kingdom's success. And really, we're just looking here, those three verses in the middle of the passage, beginning in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, 
But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And with these two really short parables, Jesus continues to, to just shatter the expectations of his hearers. The kingdom of heaven doesn't begin with a powerful and impressive band of soldiers, militants, or political operatives who conquer the Roman Empire and go on to world domination. No, it begins like a mustard seed, the smallest of garden seeds in, in Jesus' day and in that, in that area. As Jesus has already taught in the parable of the weeds, there's going to continue to be opposition. There are going to continue to be those who reject the message and the messengers. And it's not for, for God's people. It's not for the sons of the kingdom to uproot the wicked or punish the rebellious. The judgment belongs to God, and he's reserving it for a future day. But in the meantime, the kingdom is a tiny seed that grows up into a tree. And even here, the, the result is not really portrayed like this massive oak tree that just dominates the earth like you'll see, for instance, in, in uh, the visions in Daniel, like Daniel chapter 4. Certainly not, not right away. Jesus describes it as larger than all the other garden plants. You know, you ever had one of those, those things in your vegetable garden where it just kind of went a little crazy and got pretty tall? I mean, it's a little bit what we have in view here. It can provide shade and, and birds can nest in it, but it doesn't really sound like this tree that just fills the entire horizon. And yet there's still this incredible exponential growth. God's way is to use small things to accomplish his great purposes. He uses small and weak things like local churches, like small and weak Christians to do the, the quiet, easily overlooked work of preaching the gospel of the kingdom and making disciples. And so be encouraged, gathering church. Even though we feel weak, though we feel weary, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. From 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God has given us this treasure of the gospel to carry in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, as it says Second Corinthians 4, 7. And this gospel message we preach doesn't promise good health and riches. It doesn't promise political power and influence. It doesn't promise that all our problems will go away. In fact, it promises that there will still be problems, and sometimes there will be even more problems. But God promises us this. We will gain Christ. He gives us himself. We'll be reconciled to God, forgiven, accepted, brought near. So we can say with with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So even though it begins like a tiny seed, the kingdom of God succeeds as it spreads throughout the nations with this gospel, the message Jesus Christ. Isaiah 27, 6 says that in the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. And the prophet Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 17, 23 spoke of a tree so great that under it will dwell every kind of bird. And in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And, and so while the, maybe the ultimate fulfillment of this, this great, massive tree, the final fulfillment may be in the new earth, in the, in the, the final kingdom. But I think in one sense, this is fulfilled and is being fulfilled as the gospel goes to the Gentiles and spreads to every nation. You know, as workers like, like John and Laura, like Bernie and Mary Miller, like Mark and Barbara Hugo, Paul and Becky Geary, and, and just thousands of other faithful followers of Jesus carry the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And you know, as this kingdom spreads, as it expands, it's not like any other kingdom throughout human history. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not seeking to create a world empire. It's not centered in the halls of power or the high courts. It doesn't wrestle against flesh and blood. And it doesn't have any political boundaries. And yet it overtakes all other contenders. The Roman Empire came to an end. Other empires and major world powers have come and gone. And yet the kingdom of God perseveres. You know, many people uh, in this nation have been inspired by the political slogan, make America great again. You know, and I'm not a prophet and I don't know how history will unfold. And I hope we continue to enjoy the religious freedom and the other freedoms that this that this country has provided for so many, that, that so many uh, men and women have, have fought for and defended, that, uh, that we have sought as a nation to uphold and to defend. But it's possible that instead of becoming great again, America may cease to be so great in its prosperity, in its influence, in, its, in the example that it sets for democracy and for freedom, and, and in the way that Christians are treated things could get much worse for, for the entire nation and, and for us as Christians. But you know what? If so, it's another world power that's come and gone, but the kingdom of God is still on the move. The message of the gospel still goes forth, and God will still be transforming lives and transferring people from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And then Jesus also teaches that the kingdom is like leaven. It was put in a large quantity of flour, and it spreads and permeates throughout all the dough. And sometimes when you see this says, you know, three measures of flour, it sounds like, what, three cups of flour or something. It's, you know, not, not that impressive. But it, the, the Christian Standard Bible uh, tries to make these conversions so we can understand what it means. Uh, it translates this as 50 pounds of flour. I, I told Karen Lyons earlier, I was, I was thinking about her as I was studying this and, and just all the bread that she provided for our reception a few weeks ago with the, the wonderful sandwiches and just she kept bringing out more and more bread. There's plenty, plenty for all. And uh, this 50 pounds of flour would be a big, massive bowl of dough and it would be enough for, for feeding probably over 100 people. 
But what, what Jesus emphasizes with this parable is this kind of quiet, inner, transformative nature of the kingdom. And just highlighting again this, the quiet and the small beginnings of God's work in the world. It's not all about the vast number of people who enter the kingdom. You know, in so many places, Jesus says, Matthew seven fourteen, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Or in Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. And even last week, as Matthew preached the parable of the sower, you know, three out of the four soils proved to be unfruitful. But it's not really about the impressive numbers. It's not about a quantitative measure, but the qualitative change. What God gives to those in his kingdom is a new heart, the Holy Spirit. He makes, he makes me, he makes you a new creation. He calls his disciples the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and commands that we let our light shine before others. So, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment and just examine ourselves in light of these parables, in light of this picture that Jesus paints. Do we see ourselves reflected in them? As we look at the field of wheat and the weeds mingled together, do we, do we sense the profound distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan? Are we grieved over the darkness the rebellion, the emptiness that characterizes this lost world? Or have we become so at ease with it? Have we we taken on its values and its mindset so much we don't really feel any distinction? Yes, we are in the world. That is by God's design. He's not taken us out of the world. He calls us to be salt and light. But his kingdom produces this deep, permeating transformation like leaven permeating the bread And God intends us, as as Michelle read earlier from Philippians 2, to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And then Jesus teaches about the kingdom expanding and spreading until it becomes a tree, providing shelter for many. So do we long to see the gospel taken to people from, from every language and nation and tribe? Do we, do we make it our prayer, let your kingdom come? Do we pray for, for those, those people that we've partnered with for global missions? So appreciate the, the faith mission circle and just their, their faithful uh, every, every month consistently meeting together to pray for, for missions. And uh, Matthew has been recently highlighting the, the book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. And this is going to be a theme for our church campout. But she writes in that book, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Do we recognize the people from all around the globe who are flooding into our own city, our own neighborhoods? Do we, do we scheme and strategize as, as families and as community groups and as a church about how we might show hospitality, invite in strangers and aliens and display the love of Christ, share the message of the gospel? 
Now, I don't, all, I don't say all this for us to berate ourselves or to despair if we feel weak, if we feel inadequate. Remember, Jesus uses the small and the unimpressive to accomplish great kingdom work. But we must ask ourselves whether we love his kingdom, whether his kingdom is what, what motivates and moves our hearts and our lives. And so finally, point three, the kingdom's revelation. As we look at uh, first in verse 34 and 35, Matthew's commentary here. He says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So when I talk about the kingdom's revelation, I'm kind of thinking in two, two levels or two stages here. The first is with, with the first coming of Christ, his earthly ministry, his life, death, and resurrection. And then second, with, with his second coming, his return to judge the earth and to establish his eternal kingdom. So first, we have Jesus coming, and, and as Matthew says here, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, revealing mysteries about the kingdom that... Israel didn't previously understand. Uh, you know, the language that's used of Jesus with these parables in verse 24 and verse 31, it says, he put another parable before them. And this echoes the Old Testament language for Moses uh, in Exodus 19.7. It says, Moses set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him. And in Deuteronomy 4.44, it says, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. So now Jesus is the greater Moses, teaching God's people with authority, speaking to them the very words of God. And Matthew quotes uh, from Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 2 is, is how he's demonstrating the way that Jesus fulfills what, what Asaph, the psalmist, wrote. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now in Psalm 78, Asaph and if, if you want to go this afternoon and read the entire psalm, it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, psalm to read and think through. But he, he recounts all these events from Israel's history that, that people knew about. It, it wasn't anything new in that sense. But he brings them together and compares them in a way that provides new insight. Kind of like what Stephen does in Acts 7 as he recounts Israel's history. They knew all these things. They knew all these stories Yet he managed to put it in together in a way that made them really, really mad at him. <laughs> now, Asaph, in Psalm 78, he highlights how over and over again, God performs mighty acts of salvation. And yet over and over again, Israel is stubborn and rebellious. And yet despite all that, God raises up King David to shepherd and guide them. And so one commentator explains it like this. Asaph picks out significant points in the history of Israel and shows that the divine purpose has been worked out despite the rebelliousness of the people. Just as God's salvation was made clear in Asaph's interpretation of history, Matthew is saying, so is God's salvation brought out in the parables of Jesus. Jesus is revealing things about God's plan that were prophesied in the Old Testament, things that were hinted at in previous revelation, and yet he shocks and surprises his audience with seemingly new teaching as he brings 
different pieces together in ways that previously had not been clearly seen or understood. So for instance, the Messiah is the the royal son of David, yes, but also Isaiah's suffering servant. This This was not widely foreseen or widely expected. And then in the case of the kingdom and the parables that Jesus shares, he teaches the kingdom arrives and yet final judgment is delayed. Jesus comes bringing salvation for his people, but he doesn't immediately bring them into the eternal kingdom. This was an unexpected revelation. Remember, even John the Baptist questions Jesus He comes asking, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? And Jesus responds by talking about the fact that he is preaching good news. The kingdom has arrived with a message of good news, not judgment day. And so in this sense, the kingdom has been revealed. The kingdom has come. But even though it's been revealed through the message of Jesus Christ and his saving work, the final consummation, the complete transformation of the world has not yet taken place. And of course, there are a great number of people who don't see the kingdom, who don't embrace the gospel message. But Jesus reminds us with his parable that that that, that final full revelation is still coming. He says as he explains the parable of the weeds. In verse 40, he says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That, that final full revelation of the kingdom is still to come. And that is when Christ will return. And on that day, every person will know that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he rules over the entire universe and that, that they were living on borrowed time, as it were. One day, God will finally choose to, to pull back the curtain and prove undeniably That the kingdom of God is the ultimate reality of the universe and the end goal of all history. And then as Jesus said, in judgment, God will remove the weeds, the sons of the evil one, and his children will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ in the way that we've been talking about, where his kingdom is, is, is the, the primary factor of your life. He is your Lord and your King, and your faith is in Him as your, as your Savior and your Lord. I would want to simply just urge you, don't be lulled into a false sense of security. This world gives us the illusion that everything is fine, that there's no meaningful difference between those who follow Christ and those who don't. And, you know, some will even argue that the ones who follow Christ are actually the problem. They're the ones making the world worse. But you know what? It does matter whose side you're on. It matters whose kingdom you belong to. There's no neutral middle ground.
ground. The true nature of reality is that every human being alive belongs either to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the evil one, Satan. And Jesus warned his listeners, and he warns us that one day this reality would be revealed to all people instantaneously and irrevocably. The world will be turned upside down and the illusion will be shattered. When Christ returns to divide the righteous from the wicked, there is no more opportunity to change your allegiance. But today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Oh friend, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man and walked this earth 2,000 years ago, not only to teach about the kingdom, but to open the way into the kingdom for rebels like me and like you. Jesus Christ, the only sinless human being who ever lived, gave his life on the cross, dying the death that we deserved, taking our place on that Roman cross so that all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would be transferred from the realm of Satan to the kingdom of God. And yet this Jesus did not remain dead, but after three days he rose from the grave, proving that he had conquered sin and death. And he will return again in glory to reign over his people forever in a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. Eternal life in the kingdom of heaven is available to anyone, anyone with ears to hear this message. So if you've never embraced this message, if you've never put your faith in Christ, but you you would be interested in learning more, I would encourage you to come and talk to me, talk to one of the elders here, uh, some of us will be even standing up front after the service, and we would, we would be happy to just begin a conversation about what it might look like to begin following Jesus. And church, those of us who are disciples, followers of Christ, lean in and cling to the Savior with all your heart, with all your strength. Trust him as our merciful, loving king. What makes the kingdom glorious? What makes it good and true? What makes it worthy of our all? It's the king who rules it. The king who laid down his life because of the great love with which he loved us. So we can trust him. He is working through our unimpressive, weak abilities to bring about magnificent and wonderful purposes. And he's coming back soon. Amen. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, dwelt among us who revealed the Father who taught about your kingdom who overturned all of our ideas all of our expectations all of our our, our religious attitudes of, of legalism and cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves acceptable of such a great king and instead he came to serve, to lay his life down as a ransom for many, 
to open the way into the kingdom, to tear the veil that separated us from the holy and righteous God. We're so grateful. Pray that you would strengthen each one here. May we see with eyes of faith and may this this church be strengthened in the, the simple and the faithful work of proclaiming your kingdom until you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, uh, we'll be taking communion together as a church. This is the table of the Lord. We're reminded of the sacrifice Jesus made, his body given for us, his blood poured out for the new covenant. And this, this table is open for, for all who, who trust in Christ, who follow him, uh, who've, been, who've been baptized and, and made a public profession of their faith and are, are joined together with other believers in a local church. And so if that describes you and you're, you're coming visiting from another church, we, we welcome you to, to partake along with us. If for, if for whatever reason that doesn't describe you, then we would just ask you, you allow the... Uh, that you would take this time and, and just think, think about what you've heard today and think about what it would mean to make that commitment to Christ. And uh, we'll, we'll come row by row, starting in the back, come, uh, come up front and, and get the elements and take them back to your seat, and then one of the elders will lead us in taking communion together. <laughs>